Well, shall we have our Bibles open at uh, Philippians chapter 4? I guess you might call this sermon topical, um, but we will uh, look at these verses. We're going to look at how we can know the peace of God. And I think this is one of the, the greatest, and yet it seems to me one of the most misunderstood realities of the Christian faith. Um, I'm fully aware, as, as we look at this, of the kind of lives and individuals that make up Walton Church. Uh, how can I know? Well, it probably reflects uh, the lives and individuals of people in New Craig's Church, wherever we go. The needs seem to be the same. Um, you have young families, uh, uh, those uh, with challenging family life. You have those who are busy in their work life. Uh, it seems to be increasingly demanding in our day and age. Those with concerns about health. And we've thought and prayed about those individuals this evening. There's many other situations where peace might seem to be very attractive to us. But very often it can just seem to be out of our grasp. And, and we know the difference, don't we? Um, I don't know. Compare when we're on holiday, we're sitting by the pool in the warm sun with a cool drink and a, a good book. Uh, but still there's a sense that this is out of the normal routine, routine of life. Uh, and for the rest of the time, we have to live in the real world. And so peace becomes somewhat uh, elusive. And even as I'm speaking this evening, there may be uh, some who are involved in some kind of personal conflict, either at home or at work, and, and that's kind of swirling around in the back of your mind, and uh, we wish it wasn't the case, but it is, and all sorts of things in our lives that make it difficult for us to begin uh, to even know anything about uh, peace. And then, why don't we just add to that that we're in a spiritual battle, <laughs> Uh, and we feel that desperately every day. We're conscious, aren't we? As Ephesians 6 reminds us that we are to put on God's armour. And even now as we come here this evening, uh, our nations out there, well, we're going to the polls on Thursday and, and the, the, uh, the national elections. And, and yet there are um, nations that are far from peaceful either through terrorism or real threats of wars and rumours of war with the fear factor that that brings. And, and so the question is then posed, uh, what does it mean in our day and age to know the peace of God? Now, of course, the Bible isn't silent on this, as you will expect. Uh, Jesus himself says in John 16, verse 33, he's, he's gathering his disciples around him and he says, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, and this is what he wants his disciples to know. And yet in the very same breath, Jesus also says to them, I tell you these things so that you may have peace. So the question is, how can you know peace at the same time you face trouble? Uh, now, before we can know the peace, we need to understand what the Bible's definition of peace is. Uh, because listening to the words of Jesus, of course, it's quite obvious that this peace isn't anything to do with the absence of conflict or trouble. Uh, and that's the situation uh, Paul finds himself in as he writes to this church in Philippi. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, you'll notice we're introduced to two ladies. Uh, they'd evidently fallen out. They couldn't get along with each other. Onerous and so touchy. Um, it would seem these two battle axes had been slogging it out for some time. 
and everyone in the church knew about it. And as Paul writes, you can kind of hear the exasperation as, as Paul pleads with them, ladies, can't you sort this out? Agree together in the Lord. So as Paul writes to this local congregation, there is a clear relational conflict. And more than that, we get an insight in chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, Paul writes from a position of a broken heart. Uh, because as he speaks, there are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now these are people in the church, not outside the church, whose behaviour is causing deep damage to the cause of Christ. And even as Paul write, writes and, and thinks about it, um, I, I guess he would have broken down in tears. Look at verse 3 and verse uh, 18. I think that, uh, that brings that to the fore, doesn't it? For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And apart from that, we know that Paul is under house arrest. He would have been chained to a Roman guard, chapter 1 and verse 14. Because of my chains, uh, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of the Lord more courageously and fearlessly. But he's in prison, he's facing the prospect of a violent death. So we can see that the peace that Paul is going to go on to talk about is not the absence of conflict or trouble. This is not some kind of academic who, who's writing from his ivory tower with a theoretical idea. This is from a pastor in prison writing to an ordinary congregation with strained relationships. He feels a broken heart. He's facing the prospect of a soon-to-be violent death. And it's important we know all that kind of stuff because it's very easy, isn't it? Uh, when we talk about the subject of peace, for some of us just to tune out straight away, we need to know this because as Paul writes, he knows what he's talking about because he's living it. He's living in a world of conflict and he's living actually in the world that you and I live in. And so when he talks about peace that passes all understanding, he's talking about something that you and I desperately need to know. We need to discover this because it's precisely where we are in this troubled world of conflict. And so we need to know about this peace. So if this peace is not the absence of trouble, what is it? Well, uh, come on, let's have a bit of interaction. What, what's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. It's shalom. And what does the word literally mean? It means the way things ought to be. Uh, so if someone says shalom to you, they are really saying, uh, may things be the way they ought to be with you. So look at verse 9 and see the way that Paul describes God as the God of peace, which means what? Everything in God is the way that it's meant to be. There's nothing disordered, you see, or out of place, or out of control, as Michael prayed earlier, or out of character in God. He is who he is. Everything in God is as it ought to be. And so we, when we read of creation, uh, Genesis 1, uh, God creates, and he creates with this mark of shalom uh, about it. God said, what did he say? The repeated refrain, it was good. 
In other words, just as it was meant to be, the man and the woman, they walked with God in the garden, just as it ought to be. There was a perfect affinity and intimacy between the man and the woman, just as it ought to be. They enjoyed each other. They enjoyed their creator in a sublime happiness, just as it ought to be. And then, of course, chapter 3 of Genesis, sin enters the world, and the word shalom is lost. Nothing is as it ought to be. It's lost between humanity and God, between man and woman, between humanity and the created order, and it was not as it ought to be in their own hearts. The shalom of God was broken. And so the story of the Bible is how God restores that shalom as it ought to be. And, and God provides a way for things to be right between us and him, and so right between each other, because he provides a way for things to be as they ought to be in our hearts. And as the story continues, we look forward to the day when God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be as it ought to be in the home of righteousness. Now, Philippians chapter 4, you can see how this is played out. And, and I want to see this because when we're looking for this peace that can exist in the middle of trouble, the Apostle Paul tells us it's built on three foundational levels. In other words, there are other things that we need to know and have in place if we're going to experience peace. In, in the middle of trouble. Look at verse 4, because this is the first one. Paul talks here about the need to be in a right relationship with God, first of all. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. And that's how it was in the beginning, wasn't it? When God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he gave them just one command. Uh, they had a wonderful relationship with him and each other. Uh, they walked with God. God appeared to them in visible form. He shared their life, uh, their work. It was all discussed and talked about with him. They rejoiced in the Lord. That's how it ought to be. And, and then when they chose the path of disobedience, the first way in which this shalom was broken, what did they do? They hid from the Lord God. Adam's first instinct was that he didn't want to be any longer near to God. He could no longer rejoice in God. He wanted to hide from God. But what did God do? Uh, the Lord calls out for Adam. Even there, it is God who takes the initiative. He comes looking for Adam in the cool of the day. Uh, you know that feeling when you were kids and, and you were hiding and playing hide-and-seek, and, and someone's getting really close to you where you're hiding, and you don't want to be found, and, and your heart starts pumping, doesn't it? And, uh, but if you've ever been in a situation where being found would really matter, you can know the fear of that moment. Well, that's Adam's first experience of fear, because he had lost his peace. Hiding from God. H have you ever read the poem, um, The Hound of Heaven? Uh, by Francis Thompson. Um, some of it goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. It takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? It can cost you a whole lot of peace. And as long as we resist the commands of God, in other words, as long as we resist the lordship of Jesus Christ, you cannot know peace. 
And that's the first foundation on which peace that passes all understanding rests. God says in his word, there is no peace, no rest for the wicked. Uh, instead, they are like the waves. You know, uh, we can see the sea from our bedroom window. It's glorious. And, but some days, you know, you can see the waves physically being tossed backwards and forwards. And that's like the wicked. And, and yet the great invitation of the gospel is that Jesus Christ what does he do? He invites you to come out of hiding and into the arms of God who's looking for you. He came into the world to bring about this shalom. He dies the just for the unjust in order to bring you to God. The work has already been done. He died so that you wouldn't have to pursue this unwinnable war of disobedience toward him. Towards him. He, he came to restore peace between you and God. And so Paul goes on to say... This has cost me everything, but I wouldn't exchange it for the world. For knowing what I have in Jesus Christ, my Saviour. And so much so he can say, chapter 4, verse 4, I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing in God and you should do the same because nothing in this world compares to knowing this restored relationship with God. The relationship that Adam lost, but in Jesus has been brought back, and in Jesus we can rejoice in God, because I'm no longer hiding from him, because he is the joy of my life. I wonder if that's where you are this evening, or are there still shady areas of your life that you're hiding from God? Well, I think the first foundation of peace is when we come out of hiding and we submit to the lordship and rule of Jesus over our lives. But then secondly, the second foundation to know the peace of God in the middle of trouble, and Paul is at pains to say, uh, this peace doesn't just happen. No, this peace rests on certain things. Uh, so the first one, being in a right relationship with God. Secondly, verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You have to show gentleness to others. Uh, we live in this broken world. We've just explained that from the book of Genesis, where it's, I guess, not possible, is it, in our broken and messed up world for every relationship to be right. Conflict will come, but it will come to an end when Jesus returns. But we're still between the now and the not yet. And when Jesus says in Matthew 6, love your enemies, he implies that we will have enemies that we will need to love. And so if we think of peace as being the absence of trouble, then we won't be able to find it. Uh, because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Now, don't we wish that everything could be as it should be with every person that we know in this world? There are some things that you and I don't have the power to change. And conflict, though, is a two-way street, isn't it? And sometimes there are the crazy drivers coming down the other side right at you. You know those kinds of people in your life, don't you? You can picture them just now. Know that the Bible never suggests that everything has to be right in every relationship before we can know the peace of God. But, but what it does say is that you and I must do everything in our power to be a peacemaker. Um, Romans 12, verse 18. This is a, a verse well worth thinking about through times of conflict. Um, Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and do not take revenge. At least as far as your side of the road is concerned. 
your part in this situation of conflict. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your contribution not inflame the situation, uh, but rather to reduce whatever the conflict is. And, and as you pursue that, you lay a foundation for the peace of God that, that then passes all understanding, which we can then rest on. But we need to notice which way round it is. It starts with the peace with God. Notice it then tells us to pursue peace in our relationships, but then it leads thirdly to an experience of peace in our own hearts. I find that interesting because the world would suggest that actually it's the other way round. You know, it starts with me. I've got to be at peace with myself, and then I can maybe think about other people. In fact, I'll kind of love anyone who loves me. <laughs> and then maybe I can find some place with God. But the Bible says, no, it's completely the wrong way around. The first thing is that you must be in a right relationship with God. The second is that you then need to look at how you're relating to others because uh, you will never know peace in your own heart until you're a person who pursues peace in your relationships. And that's why Paul comes straight to the point, let your gentleness be evident to all. And then he goes on to talk about prayer. But then we discover all through the Bible that prayer is going to be ineffective if it's not based on seeking to do what is right in our relationships. And Jesus says that, doesn't he? Uh, he says, when you're coming to worship, Matthew 5 and verse 18, uh, and you're kind of reminded that, that you come and there's, there's some sort of conflict between you and someone else, leave your gift at the altar Go and sort it out, and then you come back and worship. And it will be more meaningful if you do. Or, or Peter says to us husbands, be very careful how you treat your wives. Treat them with respect. Why? So, he says, nothing may hinder your prayers. A bit concerned about Dickie getting revenge this morning. In other words, if I'm harsh towards my wife, uh, then I come out to the prayer meeting, I'm just wasting my time. Because my prayers will count for nothing with God spiritually. And, and, and spirituality must never be used as a cover of shoddy attitudes towards other people. The Bible's very clear about this all the way through. And so, if you're wanting to know peace in your heart then you need to approach this by making sure that you have these foundational pieces in place. A right relationship with God, showing gentleness in a harsh world towards other people who are difficult in your life. One of the things I found in Kukodi is I'm spending more money on repairs for my car because the roads are just shocking. They really are. Um, the, the local councils ought to get their act together. Um, but when I was driving my car and the car was veering all over the road and it went in for its MOT, the shock absorber had become rigid and, and rusted up. Uh, there was no give. And I guess the problem for some of us is that we become in our spirits like shock absorbers on my car. You know, rigid and rusted up and we have no give. And as we go through a harsh world, what happens? Well, we transmit the harshness that we've experienced from other people. And, and Paul says, well, don't let it be like that. Instead, let your gentleness be evident to all. Let there be some give. Let there be that shock-absorbing character within you. 
and your nature as a, a Christian in a harsh world. And of course, the example par excellence is Jesus, isn't it? On the cross, Peter wonderfully tells us in Christ, as he suffers for us, he also leaves us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. In fact, he created room, didn't he? And he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. He acted as if he was presenting the case for the defense. It's incredible. Let your gentleness in this harsh world be evident to all. And the rightness of your cause never justifies the harshness of your spirit. Let me say that again. The rightness of your cause never justifies the harshness of your spirit. And where our hearts become harsh and rigid and like that shock absorber, well, we lose our peace. For the peace of God rests on this foundation. But then thirdly, verse 6, our relationship with God, our attitude to others, but then, and this really gets to the heart of uh, the matter, just look at verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, anxiety is huge, isn't it? It gets into our heads, it gets into our hearts. You may have noticed it rears its ugly head at night time and it thrives and it easily makes us captive to fear. Now, Paul isn't uh, belittling our anxiety. He's not saying it isn't real. He knows the mighty power of anxiety. It is a real battle. And worry gets inside us, it gets inside our very souls. But he doesn't just tell us not to worry, he tells us what we're to do to fight back against it. And he says, what do you do? He says, you pray. Again, it's one of those words uh, that I think we can just switch off as Christians. uh, Because we say, well, Adam, you know, I've prayed and it didn't make any difference at all. But have you? Have I prayed about the things that are worrying me the way that the Apostle Paul talks about prayer here? Just look at what he says. He's not talking about some expression of panic on our knees. He's not talking about some kind of fraught, desperate cry for help. He's not talking about an exercise that amounts to no more than worrying on our knees. Uh, What he is saying is this. First, prayer. Now, prayer is this general word that speaks of entering into the presence of God, and it's about filling our minds with the knowledge of who God is. That's where we start, you see. You start by coming to God, and you tell him all your worries. You come into the presence of God, and you fill your mind with who God is. And that needs to be the emphasis as we come and worship together. We begin by focusing on the person, the character of God. You know when you prepare a meal... And you take a recipe, and uh, I've had some fabulous food this... uh, I never knew Ian was such a good cook, did you? Um, And Wendy as well. Some fantastic puddings today, Wendy. Um, But you know when you prepare a meal, and and you take a recipe, and and sometimes it suggests that you marinate the meat uh, in some kind of seasons. It's usually an acidic liquid or something, and... And what you do, you just allow the meat to absorb the liquid for some hours and, and you leave it to penetrate into every part of the meat and, and so it characterizes it and, and it begins to flavor it. And, and that is really what Paul is talking about here. 
So it's about filling our minds, marinating our minds, if you will, uh, with the truth of who God is. Filling our minds, the recesses of our mind. One of the most helpful books that I've read in recent days is You Can Change uh, by Tim Chester. We're going through this as a series on Sunday evening at the moment. And he identifies four liberating truths about God. It's just a couple of pages uh, where he summarizes the book. And he goes on to say that the underlying factor in all our sinful behavior, negative emotions, is a failure to believe one of these truths at a functional level. But embracing, believing, trusting, delighting in the appropriate, appropriate uh, liberating truth, therefore has the power to set us free. Uh, though we need to recognize that this is a daily struggle. It is the fight for faith. But, but these are the four liberating truths. He says, firstly, God is great. Simple, isn't it? God is great. So we don't have to be in control. Secondly, God is glorious so that we don't have to fear others. Whatever glory you see in that other person that has a hold over you, well, God is far more glorious. Just imagine the glory of God and that person standing next to God who is glorious. God is glorious so that we don't have to fear others. God is good, thirdly, so that we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious so that we don't have to prove ourselves. Isn't that liberating? And if you get that soaked into your mind, that's where you begin. And I think that some of us haven't really discovered the reality of prayer because we don't begin here. But then he goes on to, to say something else. You fill your mind with God. You absorb who he is. You absorb the truth of his character. But then he says, bring your petition. And this is the thing that identifies our request before God. This is a specific word. So, so think about your concerns and worries being... Um, I heard this illustration the other day. Uh, it's like a great rucksack on your back, and you're carrying it, and it's heavy. Maybe you imagine someone like Pilgrim's Progress, and he's carrying this burden. And, and if I said, what are you worried about? Uh, you might say, well, I don't really know. I couldn't really say. And Paul says, well, that's no good. Get the pack off your back, open it up, and take out and expose whatever is in there. In other words, put words on what is worrying you and bring these words to God. Face your fear. Don't hide from it. It will only grow bigger. Face it openly. Lord, I am scared that this might happen. Tell him, bring your request. Open it up. And then he says a third thing to do. Uh, do it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving expresses acceptance, doesn't it, of a situation. It says uh, that, God, I know that you're with me. I, I know that my life is in your hands. I know that I can trust you. I'm thankful that I belong to you. And whatever happens, I'm your child. Is it possible that you or I have underestimated and underpracticed prayer? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You know the biggest anxiety that you shared with your wife or your husband or with your friend? I wonder if you've shared it specifically with God. Just think about that one for a moment. 
Uh, Paul says, do this, and he says, I'll tell you what happens. You build a foundation in your life. Being rightly related to God in Jesus, in obedience to the Lordship of Christ, and through that you begin to show gentleness towards others in a harsh world of conflict. You rehearse how to pray in, in such a way that you soak your mind in the reality of who God is, and you bring your particular worries to him in prayer, and you get them out the rucksack, and you, you bring them before his throne of grace. And you know what happens, well, what does Paul say, verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It seems to me that in the conflict, anxiety, kind of worry-ridden society we live in today, we're looking for that peace, but but we're kind of wanting it in an instant. We're wanting it in five minutes. And, and we're not interested in what Paul has said are foundational. All that the peace of God rests on. Paul says the peace of God that passes all understanding, is, 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 it isn't some kind of quick fix. Uh, this peace actually is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the outcome of a cultivated life that's, that's committed in living in obedience with God. It's characterized by showing gentleness to other people. It's, it's permeated with the reality of authentic prayer that addresses the real issues of my life. And, and where these things have, are evidence, he says that in the middle of even extraordinary trouble, you can find peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding. You will. You see, I think the simple reason why we don't experience this peace that Paul talks about here is that there are whole areas of our lives where we've chosen not to obey God. And I say that gently, because I know my own heart. And there are some people who have been pretty harsh with us. And we've decided that we're going to be equally harsh back. And if you ask the honest questions and the honest truth about our prayer life, then there hasn't been a whole lot going on. And you know what's going to happen, you've got no peace. Paul says to a congregation in a troubled world, you can know this peace, but start with your obedience to Jesus Christ. And you go forward with a commitment in a harsh world to be like that shock absorber. You have that give. Your gentleness will be evident to all. And you're going to bring your worries, your concerns, your anxieties to God in prayer. And, and the apostle with a chain on his wrists and on his feet and and tears, and, and a broken heart. He says, I'll tell you this from my own experience. Get this in the right order, and, and the peace of God will be known. How is this peace found? Well, it rests on these foundational principles. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Simple, isn't it? What will it be like tomorrow morning? Well, let's pray these things through and then we'll see.